Induction a posteriori would have brought phrenology to admit an innate and primitive principle of human action, a paradoxical something, which we may call perverseness, for want of a more characteristic term. In the sense I intend, it is, in fact, a mobile without a motive, a motive not motivert. Through its promptings, we act without comprehensible object, or, if this shall be understood as a contradiction in terms, we may so far modify the proposition as to say that through its promptings, we act for the reason that we should not. In theory, no reason can be more unreasonable, but in fact, there is none more strong. With certain minds, under certain conditions, it becomes absolutely irresistible. I am not more certain that I breathe than that the assurance of the wrong or error of any action is often the one unconquerable force which impels us, and alone impels us to its prosecution. Nor will this overwhelming tendency to do wrong for the wrong's sake admit of analysis or resolution into ulterior elements. It is a radical, a primitive impulse, elementary. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And if you recognize that opening reading, you must be into the deep cuts of Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, this story didn't even have him burying anybody alive. Yeah, this is this is not uh, like you say. This is this is not going to be a hit single from Poe by any means. This is this is more of a deep cut. Uh, you're probably far more familiar with the Telltale Heart or the Black Cat, uh, two stories that contain similar elements, and then we'll touch on later in this episode. Yeah, so this is from Edgar Allan Poe's 1845 short story, The Imp of the Perverse. And we start with this today because in this short story, Poe brings up this concept of the imp of the perverse or this uh, this motive toward perversity, the idea of doing something exclusively for the reason that you know it should not be done and not for any other reason. And in this story, The Imp of the Perverse, uh, there is actually a murder. You, you don't get to the murder for a while. Poe <laughs> makes you wait. Uh, before before any plot, there's just this long musing complete with lots of references to the pseudoscience of phrenology. Uh, but it's amusing on this particular impulse of perverseness, the powerful urge to do what we should not and to do it simply for the reason that it should not be done. And so Poe goes on to analyze this concept uh, throughout this sort of essay section of the story. Uh, he calls it a radical, primitive impulse, uh, and he contrasts it with other types of drives that we have, which he frames in terms of the pseudoscience of phrenology again. He says it's different from mere combativeness because combativeness stems from an instinct for self-defense, right? It's rooted in the desire to be well and to protect yourself from injury. So Poe writes, quote, but in the case of that something which I term perverseness, the desire to be well is not only not aroused, but a strongly antagonistical sentiment exists. So I take that to mean he, he's trying to make clear he's not talking about any kind of self-defensive combativeness or antagonism, but rather a kind of suicidal antagonism, a thwarting of one's own best interests simply because you have a desire to do something that you shouldn't do. 
Now, the example that Poe uh, uses here, of course, is one that I think most of us can't directly relate to. Uh, the the idea of of of, of the, this impulse to confess a secret murder that you committed, but the the idea of being tempted to do something that you absolutely know you shouldn't do, like for for no logical reason right. other that's than not you in your own it. interest. Yeah, right. And like I think we can all relate to that on some level. Like I often think about this kind of thing when I'm in meetings. If yes. I'm say you know like a one on one meeting with my boss, like say it's a uh, you know, a performance review or, you know, what have you, I'll suddenly, I'll be sitting there nodding, listening, uh, absorbing the information. And then like this random thought will occur. Like, what if I lick the desk right now? Yes. You know? <laughs> what if, what if I started eating an ink pen, uh-huh. not just chewing on it, but just like really, uh, you know, chowing down on it. And I'm not logically tempted to do these things, but then once the, the idea is in my mind, uh, I just keep thinking about it. I mean, it's different from – like there are two very different ways to have a desire to say something inappropriate during a meeting with one's boss or Mm -hmm. something. One reason would be, well, maybe you've – you know, you've got all these kinds of pent-up feelings about your boss and you're very angry and you Mm -hmm. think you've been wronged or something like that. And then that would be a sort of natural – desire to express your feelings and rebel against some kind of injustice or get revenge by saying what right. you really think. That would be one thing. You're talking about something different and Poe's talking about something different. When when all those feelings aren't even necessarily there, just wanting – having this impulse to say something or do something completely inappropriate for no good reason at all. Right. I know exactly what you're talking about. I often have this thought when I'm in like a, a, a meeting or you know, something's going on. Sometimes something just flashes into my head like I could utter the following sentence and it would destroy my career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or or just you think like well, what if I like crab walked out of this meeting mm-hmm. right now? You know, it wouldn't be that difficult to do, and yet it would totally, uh, it would it would totally uh, change everyone's perceptions of how I, uh, uh, you know, how I experience reality and uh, you know the seriousness with which I take my job, that sort of thing. Um, and and I and I guess as, as we'll come back to uh, in this episode, a lot of it comes down to just that that weird dividing line between thought and action. Yeah, yeah. It's almost as if whenever you do this, you're exploring what it means to contemplate an action without doing it. It's kind of the same way. It's almost like you're feeling the texture of something in those moments where you wonder what it would be like to swerve into oncoming traffic or to jump off of a tall ledge. I mean, you. I remember a while back you did an episode with Chris about the idea of the call of the void. And I think this touches on some similar stuff, right? It's not necessarily Mm -hmm. that uh, people – I mean, people do have suicidal ideation that is – uh, more deeply rooted in in, in uh, ongoing problems they have. But there's also just these sort of like momentary fleeting impulses that don't even seem to be connected to anything larger. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, – I, I, I definitely recommend uh, listeners go back to that episode because uh, we touched on not only you know, how that we get these ideas – uh, in our head, this weird temptation when we're say, on, uh, you know, atop a tall building or on a cliffside. But uh, I, in that episode, I shared how in the past I've also felt like this weird feeling like I need to press my wallet to the bottom of my pocket for fear that I'll take my wallet out and say throw it, throw it over the the, the railing of the Empire State Building. Uh-huh. Uh, and you know, which is something I I definitely don't want to do. But then once the idea has entered my head. It does sort of feel like I should take steps to keep it from happening. Yeah, and you almost feel like 
you wonder for a second, am I going to be able to stop myself? Yeah. In this long section where Poe talks about uh, the idea of peering into an abyss in in uh, the story, he says, quote, There is no passion in nature so demoniacally impatient as that of him who, shuddering upon the edge of a precipice, thus meditates a plunge. To indulge for a moment in any attempt at thought is not to be inevitably lost, for reflection but urges us to forbear, and therefore it is, I say, that we cannot. If there be no friendly arm to check us— or if we fail in a sudden effort to prostrate ourselves backwards from the abyss, we plunge and are destroyed. So it's this weird thing where he's almost like saying, you got to depend on some kind of part of you to suddenly be the guard. What if that part of you, the guard, isn't paying attention in some mm-hmm. moment? I believe I mentioned this in the Call of the Void episode, but stuff like this always makes me think of uh, uh, the author Robert Graves, his uh, partial auto- uh, autobiography, Goodbye to All That. Mm-hmm. Uh, where he talks about his experiences in the war, uh, but also of uh, mountain climbing. And uh, if memory serves, there's this one part where he talks about climbing, scaling these, uh, you know, the, these cliff sides with some friends, and how like the scariest moment was when birds were sailing close by, and the, and having to sort of wrestle with this this weird illogical feeling of, of what have I let go? What if what if like the birds were sort of tempting them? With this uh, siren song of like, you know, let go and fly with us. I don't know if this is inspired by that, but I seem to recall a kind of stock scene in a lot of cartoons, like Wile E. Coyote type Mm -hmm. cartoons where a character, often the kind of bumbling, uh, you know, prone to injury kind of character who would be out over a ledge on a precipice or on a tightrope or something and would be – harassed by a bird fluttering, <laughs> fluttering around nearby. Uh-huh. There's something that does seem to go deep about you being vulnerable at the edge and then a, a creature that has powers that you can't just floating around as light as a breeze. Oh, yeah. I've definitely experienced it, say, standing uh, at the edge of the, the Grand Canyon. Well, not the edge. Uh, <laughs> several feet back. Uh, but still watching a bird uh, traverse these uh, to this drastic uh, change in elevation uh, with, without any uh, uh, issue at all. Now, personally, Robert, do, do you find yourself to be – I think the term would be crimnophobic, having a fear of sharp drop-offs and precipices? Yeah, at times, yeah. Like we, we have another episode that we are currently researching and recording soon on mountains. Mm-hmm. And just looking at certain pictures of mountains, looking at um, spe- specifically walkways carved into the sides of mountains. Oh, yeah. At times, they made me cringe a little bit because – and I could just imagine myself – uh, crawling up or down those stairs as opposed to, you know, walking up and down them like a normal pilgrim or something. This is funny because I have tons of fears. I'm full of anxieties about all kinds of things mm-hmm. in the world, but not this. I, I do – I'm almost kind of drawn to sharp drop-offs. I always want to oh, wow. go right up to them and look over. <laughs> yeah, well, not not me. Uh, but, of course, it's always it's always a, a challenge taking a small child to these places. Cause, oh, yeah. Because my son, he definitely wants to go up and check out the edge. And it just – that that unnerves me even more. Well, I can imagine that would change everything. Mm-hmm. I, I My whole life I've had the experience of being told to stay away from the edge even <laughs> now. 
Yeah, well, I, I had this issue before uh, a kid was in my life for sure, though. It's just the uh, the edge is too close. Well, anyway, sorry. So to come back to the Edgar Allan Poe story, uh, the story goes on to tell of how the narrator, he, he, goes, he gives this long essay, this kind of speech about phrenology and about the imp of the perverse. And then he tells uh, a very brief version of his story, which is that he came up with an ingenious plan to get away with murder. And the way he did it was he murdered someone with a poisoned candlestick because he knew they would light a candle to read in bed at night. And so he gets away with the murder undetected. But then years later, having totally gotten away with it, he is seized with this uncontrollable urge to confess in public, which he does kind of raving in the middle of a public, uh, you know, marketplace type Mm -hmm. area, uh, which of course lands him in chains and sentenced to hang for his crime. And that's where he is as he tells the story. But The story itself might not be all that remarkable as far as Poe's stories go, but it does bring up this interesting idea. It personifies this imp of the perverse, the idea of wanting to do something simply because it is something that should not be done, either like morally, you know, maybe it's a violation of norms or because it's against one's own interest, that there's just some compelling force telling you not to do it. And that's the very reason you can't stop thinking about doing it. Yeah, uh, I mentioned the Telltale Heart earlier, and I think that's that's. I think most would agree that's probably a better story that deals with with uh, with with a very similar premise. Uh, the idea, of course, in that, if you haven't read it, is that this guy killed an old man and uh, buried him under the the, the the boards in his what his living room, I believe. Mm. The police come to ask questions, and he just hears the thumping of the heart until it drives him bonkers, and he just starts pulling up the the boards right and or 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 telling the uh, the investigators like look he's under there pull up the boards uh i killed him and his uh, you know his heart is beating um uh, and in that he's dealing with the the imp of the perverse as well yeah. uh manifested as this this nagging beating heart now it's been a while since i've read the telltale heart maybe you can answer this better than i um do you think that does guilt play a role in that story? Is he guilty for about what he has done and is a feeling of guilt driving him toward his confession? Or is it more like the imp of the perverse where he doesn't even seem to feel bad about it? He's just got this urge to tell. Well, you know, it's been a while since I've read it or I remember seeing like a stage adaptation of it as a, as a kid. Uh, it's been a while since I've, I've I've interacted with either, but I remember I used to think it was more of the guilt issue because that seems like the the obvious trope, right. right? The idea that you're you're just you've done this horrible thing, and the weight of the thing you've done eventually pulls out the confession. But having become acquainted with the imp of the perverse now, which which I uh, before re- researching this uh, episode I was not familiar with, mm-hmm. I think it really makes me realize that Poe was probably thinking about other ideas here. Right. And he was dealing with something a little more complicated uh, in the human mind as opposed to this more cliched uh, uh, imbalancing in the, the, the human heart. So maybe his his urge to confess was not a moral urge, but more just kind of uh, uh, the imp of the perverse. It was a neuroticism. Yeah. So one thing I think about, uh, especially given all the references to phrenology in this Poe story, I guess, you know, before you had psychology, you had pseudoscience like phrenology. Mm-hmm. And it it makes me think about, you know, what's the kind of bridge between these two worlds, you know, getting getting to modern psychology. And that makes me go to Freudianism. I don't know if your brain kind of goes to the same place there. Oh, yes. But I mean, I you you see – 
echoes of things like the imp of the perverse in the writings in the psychoanalysis style of Freud, right, where he talked about things like a death drive or a, or a death instinct, right? And would that be sort of related? Yeah, I believe so. And I've um, and, and I found, uh, it, uh, you know, a, a few authors that have um, chimed in on this. Mm-hmm. So Sigmund Freud, just to refresh, uh, lived 1856 through 1939. And he's best remembered for his work uh, on the unconscious mind. Uh, but he also theorized about the role of powerful instincts that energize the mind. Mm-hmm. And these instincts are numerous and varied, but he grouped them into two main categories. There's eros, uh, the, the life instinct. And then there's Thanatos, the death instinct. And these names, of course, refer to the Greek mythological gods of life and death. Mm-hmm. So the sexual influence of the libido only concerns, only connects directly to the instincts of Eros, uh, while the instincts of Thanatos focus on aggression, self-destruction, and cruelty. So I think it would be reasonable to situate the imp of the perverse within the Freudian instinct family of Thanatos. Mm-hmm. Now, I uh, was looking around for, uh, for papers on this, and I found a really good one from uh, Lorelei Karaman. Uh, and she explored this in a 2014 paper titled The Urge to Tell Versus the Need to Conceal, Confession as Narrative Desire in Pose the Black Cat, the Telltale Heart, and the Imp of the Perverse. Oh, okay. And this was published in uh, American and British Studies Annual. And as the title indicates, um, uh, the author, uh, Karaman, points out that, that Poe considered the drive to confess in not only the imp, but also in the more well-known black cat and the telltale heart. Quote, what is noteworthy is the nature of these confessions, their inexplicable, irrational quality, as if driven by a certain kind of urgency, by a force seemingly independent of their will. If the crimes committed appear more or less calculated, their confessions, by contrast, are almost unaccountably impulsive. That's, uh, yeah, that's totally accurate to the actual writing of the story, The Imp of the Perverse, I mean, the author is <clears throat> cold and calculating and psychopathic about mm-hmm. the crime. You know, he thinks it through. He plans it out. He doesn't appear to feel bad about it. But then the the con- the desire to confess comes on as just this kind of like obsession from out of nowhere that he, he can't keep his mouth closed. He's running around thinking, I'm about to blurt it out. And then yeah. he does. Yeah, uh, in this paper, uh, the author points out that that past critics, such as Arthur Brown and Henry Sussman, uh, have taken uh, you know all of this apart. With the latter, Sussman pointing out that the act of, conf- of confession in these tales is a quote transgression of the boundaries between the private and the public. Hmm. Kind of like again that, that that gray line between thought and action, uh, for yeah. instance. Um, so uh, you know, in these stories, we see something that exists in the mind leaking out. Uh, you know, the desire to tell overpowers the desire for concealment. Um, well, you know, one thing I wonder about with the references to phrenology in the story mm-hmm. is that in the 19th century, there could easily have been anxieties about the idea of an emerging science of the mind. You ever think about this? Like that mm-hmm. you're – so a person always has their private thoughts. Their thoughts are their own or maybe they're between them and the god they believe in or whatever. But they're, they're private in some way. Other people can't know about them. But I wonder if you live in a world where there are all these burgeoning sciences and the, the sciences are increasingly uh, – intruding into domains like life and, you know, and the social sciences mm-hmm. and the the mind itself and, you know, emerging fields like psychology, you, you have to start to wonder, will people be able to read my mind with these sciences? Is there is there going to be a diminution of the, the private privilege with one's own thoughts? 
Uh, yeah, when we see this uh, kind of anxiety reflected in, in so many works of uh, science fiction over the years, you know, the idea of, uh, of thought police, um, uh, you know, de- determining what, uh, uh, what's going on inside your head, of, of passing through that boundary between action and thought. I was, in fact, just reading a Peter Watts short story about oh, this very topic. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, but in these stories, uh, something that Karaman uh, point, points out and drives home uh, in referencing the work of these other uh, um, um, scholars is that, you know, it's ultimately, it's not as simple as, oh, this character is mad or, and that's why they did their crime and or blurted it out, but that there's something going on in the unconscious that is by definition unreadable. Hmm. And that's the ultimate spooky, scary, mysterious part, uh, that there's something uh, – there's something going on in there, that there are these contradictory drives in the subconscious, and, uh, and we don't really know what to expect from them. Well, yeah, I can see this story situated again in kind of a bridge land between an old model that might often – like an old model of the mind that might have often said if you have drives or desires that don't feel like yours, that's a demon, you know, mm-hmm. like that you could actually have the devil whispering in your ear that it's an imp, you know, and there, and you've got devil possession and all that. And then you've got this uh, th- this new way of thinking about things where, where, well, maybe you don't consciously understand all of your own drives and desires and motivations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, in all of this, I, 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 I can't help but think back to, um, uh, I can't remember the exact uh, biblical passage, but you know, the basic idea that you see reflected in uh, a lot of uh, Christian theology that um, if you do something in your heart, it is, as, uh, it is as if you did it in real life, as if you actually committed the act. Yeah. And um, uh, again, like the, even that, without getting into kind of like, the, you know, the theological discourse on it that's kind of dealing in this 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 thin line or this at times seemingly thin line between thought and action between contemplation of the illogical and the, and the you know and committing the illogical yeah and in in that whole thing i mean i i can see arguments on on both sides of the whole uh, like if you are whoever has uh, felt wrath against his brother has committed murder in his heart mm-hmm. uh on one hand i mean that seems like uh, that's kind of almost kind of a very bad lesson to teach people right, right. That, like the, the you know it's it's just as bad to think about doing something bad as it is to actually do it it kind of blurs the line of like resistance to evil right right I mean, especially as we proceed through this this, uh, episode, we're going to get into some areas where it really shows how problematic that is. Yeah, exactly. To say, don't think that, you know, (laughs) try to think something else. But, I mean, it does highlight, even if we can say that's maybe bad advice, it does highlight something. Mm -hmm. And what it highlights is that, um, you know, if you allow yourself to contemplate something that you know you should not do a lot, you may very well wear down your resistance to doing it. Right. All right, well, on that note, let's let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will chase the imp uh, a little bit more through the subconscious. All right, we're back. So we've been discussing this idea of the imp of the perverse that comes mm-hmm. from this Edgar Allan Poe short story from the 1840s where there is this strong impulse to do something just because you shouldn't do it and not for other reasons. Uh, so I was reading an article about this in Psychology Today by Emile Bruneau who is a uh, professor at UPenn and it brought up a few interesting things. So this article – 
tells an interesting story about the imp uh, and inhibition and neuroscience. And the story starts when Bruno was in graduate school, and he, he talks about how he witnessed a neuropathology examination of a deceased patient. And so a neuropathology examination involves cutting open the brain and examining it and figuring out, you know, was there any damaged tissues or, or uh, neural degeneration? And also present at this examination was a social worker who had known the, the patient before he died. And so the autopsy revealed degeneration in the prefrontal cortex, especially of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And this is the outer part of the brain starting above the temples and sort of reaching up onto the outside of the forehead. And Bruneau mentions that this area is important for cognitive control. I was reading about its role in cognition and behavior, and it's generally believed to – have a lot to do with many different kinds of executive function. This includes things like selective attention, choosing what to pay attention to and what to think about, uh, things like working memory and meta-memory. So meta-memory is the cognitive management of memories, like judging whether a particular memory is relevant or correct. But this area also appears to have things to do with planning, with regulating and overriding emotions, and crucially with inhibition. And the management of inhibition also appears to be a major function of the prefrontal cortex in general, which, remember, uh, showed damage all over in this patient. So because of this physical neuropathology, the doctor performing the autopsy asked the man's social worker if he had had any issues with impulsiveness and control. And the social worker said, yes, in fact, later in life, this man had repeatedly had a problem with jumping out of moving cars. Oh, wow. Jumping out of moving cars. And I thought that's really interesting because that's not just something like, you know, taking food out of somebody's hand or, or uh, sexually inappropriate th behavior, things that are certainly wrong but that you can see how disinhibition would allow just sort of natural urges that people have otherwise to, uh, to come out without being mediated by the thought, I shouldn't do that. With jumping out of moving cars, you have to wonder more, like, where does that urge come from to begin with? And in fact, this kind of thing is more common than we might normally imagine. Uh, Bruno himself writes that, quote, 57% of people with frontotemporal dementia, which is neural degeneration that targets the frontal and temporal lobes, violate social norms, engaging in sexual transgressions and public nudity, shoplifting in front of store managers, eating out of the trash. It is common knowledge in the field of neuroscience now that these behaviors are due to a problem of disinhibition because of a deterioration of the cognitive control network of the lateral prefrontal cortex. And so I was looking into this more uh, and I found even more support for the role of the prefrontal cortex in inhibiting imp-like behaviors and more evidence that when the prefrontal cortex is impaired, inhibition suffers and we, be, we begin to act out transgressive and inappropriate behaviors. So one study I looked at was called uh, Diagnosis and Management of Behavioral Issues in Frontotemporal Dementia by Manu Carey and Huey in Current Neurology and Neuroscience Reports from 2012. And they write that uh, behavioral disinhibition is a classic hallmark of the behavioral variant of frontotemporal dementia. 
quote, within the first several years of symptoms, patients can behave contrary to social norms. They may inappropriately touch or aggressively approach strangers or even engage in theft or other criminal behaviors. Patients may also disregard subtler social norms to make offensive jokes or sexual remarks, encroach on the personal space of others, and exhibit childish behavior and a general lack of etiquette. Disinhibition may also be exhibited in the form of rash or impulsive actions like gambling or repeatedly falling for financial scams. The largest autopsy-confirmed study of BVFTD, or behavioral variant uh, frontotemporal dementia, found 76% of patients exhibited behavioral disinhibition or impulsivity. So it seems like when something happens to this part of the brain, when you've got impairment of the frontotemporal area, you see this almost all the time that there is there is a problem with regulating one's behavior and you see people acting out things that they might think about but wouldn't normally do. And this is all quite an imp to consider because, again, we're getting back to the the idea that the, I mean, the choice is kind of being taken out of our hands, right? Yeah. Um, in, in this case, it's we're getting down to uh, uh, essentially in a brain injury. Yeah, I mean, this kind of thing really always makes me consider stuff like criminal justice, mm-hmm. you know, the, the idea that, um, that okay, so we, we say we want to live in a society where people are held accountable for their actions. And that, that seems to make sense to me intuitively. You don't want people to just go around wantonly harming other people and getting away with it and you know, mm-hmm. not facing any consequences. But then at the same time, it's hard to look at stuff like this and and think that it really makes sense to punish people for their behaviors mm-hmm. when our behavior, you know, we we can go out and hurt people because we have a tumor in a certain part of our brain, or because we're experiencing uh, we're experiencing dementia due to old age or some kind of brain disease, or because we have a head injury. All kinds of physical facts that we would agree people are not at all to blame for contribute to them doing things that violate social norms and harm other people. And so if, if that's the case, also people didn't, I mean, pick the brain they were born with either. You didn't, you didn't ask to be born with a brain that makes you more likely to be aggressive or invade people's personal space. And yet then again, we can't like encourage those behaviors. I don't know. It, it, this kind of thing leaves you in a real pickle in thinking about how to deal with, uh, with human misbehavior. Yeah, I do feel like a lot of it does kind of, uh, you know, spring forth from older ideas about, you know, in which, uh, you know, committing a, you know, an improper act is a is is a statement on a, uh, a you know, a pure moral failing. Yeah. Um, you know, some uh, problem in the soul as opposed to something that is, you know, more of a, that is a medical issue. But I was also further wondering about the, the idea of like impulses and impulse control because, okay, so we know that certain parts of the brain are very important for keeping the imp of the perverse from taking control of the wheel, right? From the, the, the prefrontal cortex, uh, the frontotemporal regions, these play some kind of major role in inhibition. And if there's injury to them or something is wrong in there, you can stu- suddenly start doing things that you normally would stop yourself before acting out. But I wonder about the first half of the equation, like the urges themselves. Where do the urges to do the wrong thing come from in the first place? 
in this article I was talking about a minute ago, Bruneau identifies the orbitofrontal cortex as a likely seat of impulses like this. And he he links this to the way that like tumors in the orbitofrontal cortex can sometimes cause people to suddenly start engaging in criminal behaviors that they never would have before. And uh, like the the awful history of, uh, of uh, frontal lobotomy, you know, that went into the orbitofrontal cortex and severed connections in there through the eye socket – and the idea that this would reg uh, reduce aggression and inappropriate behaviors, which it often did, but also just did general damage to people's brains and personalities in many cases. And that's a that's a kind of horrible story in the history of medical neuroscience. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the <laughs> the real life horror stories kind of circling around all of this. Yeah. Uh, but, but anyway, I, so I looked this up and based on all the literature I was reading, it also seems like the orbitofrontal cortex plays some major role in decision making and emotions and behavioral uh, inhibition such that injuries or tumors or degenerative disease in the OFC – can lead to disinhibited behavior, though I, I'm no neuroscientist, obviously, but reading around, I can't see quite exactly the reason that the imp would necessarily be there except to say that like the lateral prefrontal cortex, the orbit, uh, orbitofrontal cortex is generally important for value-based decision-making and behavioral control. For example, I was looking at a 2017 paper in Social Cognitive and Affective Neuroscience by uh, Corponet et al. that just found a, a strange thing that uh, it increases in the volume of the prefrontal cortex and intra-prefrontal functional connectivity uh, were related to impulsive and antisocial psychopathic traits. But anyway, so multiple regions of the prefrontal cortex do appear to play a significant role in the generation of impulses to act out and in the control and inhibition of those impulses when we judge them inappropriate. You want to do something bad, but you stop yourself from doing that bad thing. A lot of what's going on there seems to depend on and happen in the prefrontal cortex. But I guess in any of these cases, you do have to ask the question, is this the imp of the perverse or is this just a desire for something? Thing that you would normally be able to inhibit with your, with, you know, with your behavioral control, with your executive function, or is it really the perversity that motivates the action in the first place? Uh, like there are all kinds of things we could do in order to get something that is an otherwise normal intrinsic desire. People with disinhibition patterns violate norms uh, and act inappropriately to get food, to get sexual gratification, to get revenge or to get items they want, to express power over people. And there, there are good reasons for not doing all these things based on our morals, but the underlying motivations to do them exist independently. So I wonder what provides the impulse to act perversely in the true spirit of the Poe story? Are there cases where we can only understand why the brain would act contrary to its awareness of norms uh, for the reason that that action is contrary to norms with no identifiable other motivation. Cases where the perversity is clearly what causes the action in the first place. Fortunately, we have a, a very interesting theory to discuss ab about where a lot of this is coming from. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to discuss the ironic process of mental control. All right, we're back. So, Robert, we're asking the question, 
Have we ever been able to identify any cases where there is something like the imp of the perverse, where the perversity of a thought or impulse or action actually does tend to cause the brain to favor it? And one place we can take this line of thought is uh, to the Harvard psychology professor Daniel M. Wegner, who passed away in 2013, but who wrote about this idea of the ironic process of mental control. That's right. And he actually begins the paper with a passage from Poe, from uh, The Imp of the Perverse. Uh, but uh, the first paragraph of this uh, paper is just pretty spot on, I think, in, in terms of like sort of, of you know, striking a chord with, uh, with something that we can all uh, relate to. Quote, it sometimes seems that our desires to control our minds are met by an inordinate measure of failure. Whether we want to stop a worry, concentrate on a task, go to sleep, escape a bad mood, distract ourselves from pain, be humble, relax, avoid prejudice, or serve yet other mental goals, we find ourselves faltering again and again. Indeed, our attempts at mental control fall short so often that we may stop to wonder, along with Poe, whether there is some part of our minds, an imp of the perverse that ironically strives to compel our errors. The theory of ironic processes of mental control make precisely this claim. And uh, so in his ironic process theory, which he pre presents in this paper, he argues that, quote, the ironies of mental life are not just happenstance examples of the frailty of human endeavors, but rather are logically entailed by the nature of mental control. So he's arguing that the very nature of the way cognition happens tends to favor us thinking about things that we're trying not to think about. Exactly. Yeah, he's saying that, that, you know, when we attempt to exert mental control via what he refers to as the operating process, uh, to fill the mind with a desired array of emotions or thoughts, you know, like I'm going to cheer up or I'm going to I'm going to get into a calm state of mind, whatever the desire is. Stop worrying. Yeah, I'm going to stop worrying. Um, uh, when we do that, uh, the monitoring process kicks in to ask, is this the case? Is this, the, is this working? Is this how I'm actually feeling? Um, so it not only searches for failure, but, quote, tends to create the failure. Yes. Yeah. So that's what he's saying. It's not just that we're not very good at controlling the contents of our brains. Often the attempt to control the contents of our – not just our brains, our minds. Uh, the attempt to control the contents of our minds backfires spectacularly. Yeah. It's like we're saying, I would rather not be sad right now. Um, I'm going to go ahead and load uh, happiness. And then the monitoring process says, uh, let me check. Nope, you're sad. We're going to schedule down for another hour of sad. <laughs> Uh, so this is this is a wonderful paper. Uh, the title is "Ironic Processes of Mental Control" uh, by Daniel M. Wegner, W. E. G. N. E. R., uh, published in the Psychological Review in 1994. And if you yeah, if you search around, you can you can find this one online pretty easily. Uh, but uh, he he presents uh, some other uh, individuals' work uh, just to uh, to support this idea. Uh, one of them is. Uh, uh, is the work of French chemist uh, Michel Chevreul, uh, and he is uh, uh, known for Chevreul's pendulum. So he debunked a spiritualist illusion in 1833 in which a weighted body suspended by a string from the fingers was uh, found to oscillate back and forth when concentrated upon. Uh-huh. Similar, this is pretty— this How is can the, you explain that? <laughs> well, it's the same—the uh, best way to explain it, because I think most of us have probably not uh, manipulated this pendulum, but if you've mm. ever played with a Ouija board, well, then you have experienced the same uh, uh, thing. Right. It is a kinesthetic illusion. The, you know, the, the idea that the, the causation of movement— is uh, is occurring without the perception of our own conscious muscle movement, uh, also known as the uh, uh, 
um, ideometer phenomenon. And it's connected to automatic writing, to dowsing, and uh, other alleged supernatural acts. Anything that involves you not moving something, feeling like you're not moving something, but actually moving something. Yeah. Though it also reminds me of the the psychomotor problem known as target fixation, which I'd read about years ago but just recently came to my mind. So this is something that occurs in driving and piloting. I've read about it primarily with respect to operating a motorcycle for some reason. I don't know why a motorcycle specifically and not other vehicles. But here's the basic idea, Robert. You're steering a vehicle and you suddenly notice an obstacle or threat that you need to avoid – and then you steer directly into the obstacle. Mm-hmm. An example I've read about is that, say, you're on a motorcycle in a motorcycle race on a closed track, and then one cycle veers off the track and crashes. Uh, it's apparently, in this case, not unusual for cycles going along behind it to steer off and follow the crashed motorcycle. And this is usually described as a panic reflex, like you see an obstacle or a crash or something threatening or dangerous, and you immediately, because it's threatening and dangerous, focus all your attention on that thing so as not to run into it. But because you focus all your attention on that thing, you unconsciously steer your vehicle directly toward it. Oh. I am curious why this uh, is is mainly talked about with motorcycles and not so much with other motor vehicles. It could just be that the motorcycles uh, and motorcyclists who talk about this are often operating at a faster speed. I don't know. It does seem to line up with a number of the the, the, the principles we're talking about here right. uh, in uh, Wegner's uh, theory. And now uh, Wegner also brings up Freud's counterwill to bring it back to Sigmund Freud. Um, uh, Freud's uh, read on what's happening here is that we can't do the thing we want to do sometimes uh, as if there's another will within us countering the will to do the thing. Uh, And he employed this in his consideration of hysteria. He also brought up uh, the law of uh, reversed effort by uh, Charles Baudouin from 1921. And this was kind of an early hit on the same uh, ideas uh, involved in the ironic process theory. Mm -hmm. But but in the ironic process theory paper, uh, Wegner lays out a model of of how this goes down. First with the effortful operating process and then the effortless monitoring process. And that's part of the maddening thing about it, right? It's like you can can exert so much will to try and change your mind state. But then the resistance is just – it's it's like it's an alien force that uh, has its own reserves of energy to draw on, limitless uh, even. And then he goes on to consider the evidence from experiments into uh, movement, prejudice, self-presentation, belief, disbelief, sleep, wakefulness, pain. Uh, it, it's it's really a robust paper in this mm-hmm. regard. And he did a bunch of empirical research in this yes. area. I mean, uh, doing experiments to show directly – Uh, And in fact, in some ways, it's not hard to demonstrate. For example, by asking people to verbalize a stream of consciousness, you can find quite easily that people who are told to try hard not to think about something end up thinking about it a lot. And in the section uh, on chronic production of ironic effects, he discusses how all of this can potentially lead to a positive feedback loop of ironic effects, wearing you down with increased mental load as everything, quote, is magnified toward uh, psychopathological logical extremes, hmm. um, which, you know, even though, he, you know, he's talking about something, he's talking about this in the sense that, uh, you know, this is how our minds seem to work. But on the other hand, this sounds just 
completely awful. This sounds like a like a terrible system, right? Yeah. Uh, where you just keep running up against you know a potential positive feedback loop of of you know increasingly worrisome uh, effects like this. It reminds me a lot of uh, you know of, of what is uh, referred to in psychology as catastrophic thinking mm-hmm. you know where you end up obsessing over extreme and or irrational worst case scenarios yeah catastrophizing yeah, th- yeah this is a tendency to always look out for in your loved ones or when you catch yourself doing it because i mean it can be a sign that something's really wrong with your thought patterns when you you're always trying to imagine what's the worst way things could possibly go yeah it, i mean it brings me back again to something we've discussed in the show before. You know, we've talked about chronesthesia, mental time travel, mm-hmm. or, uh, as well as theory of mind, and uh, and how both of these play in our, in our ability to uh, sort of run uh, simulations of how the future might go. Yeah. Uh, and so when we're going into that meeting with our boss, you know, we, we have various simulated ideas of how things will go, uh, you know. Probably some that are very reasonable, but then you're going to have some that are extreme. Maybe you're you're overly optimistic, and there's one that's just a fantasy where you get like you know the the, the billion dollar uh, raise or something. Uh-huh. And then there are the ones that are more catastrophic in nature, uh, ones that are maybe getting into the territory of the the imp of the perverse. What if I lick the table or eat a pen? That sort of thing. But then aren't we not like wasting our efforts on these models when we should be using our mental energy toward the models that are more possible? I mean, on one hand, yeah, it does seem like it, it. there is adaptive value in being able to simulate future events. Mm-hmm. But it does seem like we waste a lot of this uh, potential we have, uh, this ability we have to simulate future events in our minds on, yeah, just, just ruining ourselves and ruining our emotional state by obsessing with things that are not helpful. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it can be hard to understand exactly why that happens. But, but anyway, but back to Wagner here. He, you know, he ultimately argues that the ironic process theory could explain a lot of our, about our mental control. Uh, but he also brings it back to the imp, saying, quote, The theory also accounts for one further class of effects, the class that cries out for explanation and from which we often cry out for relief. The theory suggests that the ironic monitor is responsible for the instances in which we find that we do say, think, or feel precisely what we least intend. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when you consider like the model we were talking about earlier, the, clearly within the brain there are There are subsystems for generating impulses to action and then there are other systems that provide inhibitory control. You know, executive function of the brain says to some impulses, no, let's not do that. Mm -hmm. But when there is a – when there is, say, a thought that you are repeatedly returning to, especially because you're trying to avoid thinking it due to the ironic process of mental control, you keep thinking, am I not thinking about it? And every time you think that, you think it. That That's bringing it constantly to mind. And then if there's ever a failure of inhibition for whatever reason, mm-hmm. you know, either just a kind of like momentary glitch or because you've got a neurodegenerative disease or a tumor or whatever – that impulse generated by the ironic process by checking on your own mind to make sure you're not thinking about the thing you're not supposed to think about turns into an action. Now, all of this sounds uh, overwhelming, really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
uh, like oh, I guess the imp wins. Like you know, the, what what can one do against this uh, this kind of situation? How can we possibly? Uh, it's depressing to think that we would that we have such a difficulty in in changing our mind state, uh, even though we we obviously put a lot of of energy into trying to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, so it might lead some of you to wonder, well, okay, well, what did Wagner have to say about this? Did he have any uh, advice for dealing with these forces? Yeah, and so Wagner actually gave a presentation about the imp of the perverse and about thought suppression to the American Psychological Association in 2011 where he reviewed his research over his career on this subject. And there was an article discussing this presentation in the APA Journal by Aaliyah Wienerman. Uh, and it discusses how Wagner said in his presentation that it's clear from the research that attempting not to think about something not only doesn't work, it makes you more likely to think about that thing. But what people always want to know is what you're just asking about, Robert. OK, if the imp is there and simply attempting not to think about something will make you think about it more and maybe even make you more likely to do it possibly, is there anything you can do to defeat the imp? There does not, unfortunately, appear to be a foolproof method, but Wegner laid out several methods that he and his colleagues had discovered which had some degrees of success and empirical support. Uh, Number one is instead of trying not to think about the thing you don't want to think about, think about something else. Busy your mind with other contents. Uh, Wegner and colleagues found in at least one other study that when they asked people to think about a red Volkswagen instead of a white bear, the people were somewhat more successful than when they were just told not to think of a white bear. Trying not to think about something is a losing game. But if you positively think about something else instead, then you then you have a better chance. And I'd say this is one case where the empirical research does seem to line up with uh, with I don't know at least the what seems to be reasonable conventional wisdom, right? Mm-hmm. You you can't just obsess about not wanting to feel what you're feeling. You should find something to do, right? When you find something to do, when you find another project, then your mind becomes sort of full of other things rather than just like an, a, a void or a vacuum that you're trying to keep the bad stuff out of. Next thing he recommends is mentally postpone unwanted thoughts. I thought this was kind of interesting. Uh, Apparently, some research has found that if you just give people a designated period of 30 minutes to worry about something, they worry less about it at other times. So if the imp of the perverse is continually turning your mind to an unwanted subject, Wegner suggests telling yourself, I'm going to think about that uh, sometime next Wednesday, and I won't think about it until then. And somehow this is actually – or at least apparently, this is somewhat effective. Hmm. Another strategy he recommends is uh, lighten your mental load or avoid multitasking. Quote, one study found that people under increased mental load show an increase in the availability of thoughts of death, one of the great unwanted thoughts for most people. Uh, Though, I mean, I kind of wonder about this one. I mean, this could be, seems like it could be resulted to stress and a, a lot of different things. Next one apparently is exposure therapy. You think about the unwanted thought deliberately in controlled ways, in controlled settings, and it may become less intrusive at other times. And this strikes me as perhaps one of the benefits that uh, benefits of something like traditional talk therapy. It provides a positive and controlled setting to pay attention to unpleasant and unwanted thoughts so that they become less persistent and intrusive at other times. 
And then finally, the last one is he recommends mindfulness meditation, learning how to manage your attention and consciousness through mindfulness meditation practice. This does appear somewhat helpful. And this makes sense to me. If you've never tried mindfulness meditation, it's worth – I think everybody should try to give it at least one shot and see what you think about it. Uh, there are many different kinds of meditation practice. Mindfulness specifically is about – attention and experience. It's usually done by having an object of focus. Your own breath is a common one. And you just try to pay intense, unbroken attention to a thing. Now, of course, you will, you know, your mind will wander. And then you just sort of continually notice your own mental experiences and return your attention to the object of focus. It it tends to make you calmer and better at understanding the way your own attention works. Yeah, and of course we've we've discussed meditation on the show before. Uh, so if if anyone wants uh, you know a deeper dive into that, certainly uh, uh, look back in the archives for this show. Mm-hmm. But this gives us a little bit of hope. It, it does provide. Ho- hopefully, we can we can close out this episode with some hope uh, for all of us dealing with our own personal imps. Totally, and I especially feel for for me. I and I think for a lot of people these days, they're internet imps. The internet imps come in at us all the time. I feel like our brains are especially vulnerable these mm-hmm. days because of uh, social media and online headlines and all that. Our electronic connectedness has made us all the more vulnerable to uh, to, to to impish behavior from the information world. Now, in this episode, we talked about intrusive thoughts a good bit. We talked about, you know, the call of the void, et cetera. Uh, so I think it is good to to, to uh, close out by just reminding everybody that if, you, you know, if you're dealing with intrusive thoughts of, uh, of say, suicide, um, you know, a, a sympathetic ear is only a phone call away. In the United States, consider calling the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 and visit uh, suicidepreventionlifeline.org for additional resources tailored toward general and specific needs, such as those of uh, youth, disaster survivors, Native Americans, veterans, lost survivors, LGBTQ, and attempt survivors. Uh, You'll find a list of uh, international suicide hotlines at suicide.org. But to close things out on uh, on a lighter note, uh, Joe, uh, the imp of the perverse, uh, did you imagine it looking like uh, a ghoulie, a gremlin, a hobgoblin, or some other cinematic uh, diminutive monster? Oh, the imp of the perverse is Jabba the Hutt's little buddy. What's he called? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, goodness. Uh, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, something like... Uh, the, l- the little beak dog. Yes, yes. Uh, something like Scarless Fudge, but not <laughs> Scarless Fudge. Why? What did you picture, Robert? Uh, I pictured a hobgoblin from the movie Hobgoblins, for sure. That's yeah. a very, very good choice. But a gremlin or a ghoulie would also be acceptable. I know you're partial to ghoulies. Yeah, I mean, ghoulies are pretty terrifying. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, that's probably what came to my mind when I first imagined the imp of the perverse. All right, so we're going to close it out. Uh, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes. Uh, and also be sure to check out our other show, Invention. It's uh, an invention-by-invention invention, uh, exploration of human techno history. Are you not subscribed to Invention yet? If not, get on that. Go right over. It's called Invention. You can get it anywhere you get podcasts. Go and subscribe now. If you like this show, we think you'll love that one. Uh, so anyway, 
Huge thanks to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to uh, get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.